Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you might think that when you're sleeping, that might be the only time when you're really disconnected from your smartphone, from if you have a listening device in your home, from people trying to market things to you and get to you. That might not be the case. And that is why we are talking about something called dream hacking. Joining me to talk more about this is Dr. Robert Stickgold, professor of psychiatry and director of the Center for Sleep and Cognition at Harvard University. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a delight. Happy to be here. Before we get into this idea of dream hacking, do we know exactly what it is that's happening to our brains and why we're dreaming and why sometimes we remember them and sometimes we don't and and why they can be so strange at times? Well, we know a bunch of that. Um, We dream the way we do in part because when we're asleep, the chemistry of our brain changes. The release of chemicals like noradrenaline and serotonin, the one that SSRIs work on, is completely shut off during REM sleep. And so basically the programming of the brain is shifted while we sleep. All right. So and so, can it be altered or can, can what we do during the day and maybe what we do just before we go to sleep, does that alter or does that get into what it is we're dreaming about? Absolutely, absolutely. We've done a study in the last... Uh, years, we had subjects take an afternoon nap, and as they were falling asleep, we would say, okay, while you're falling asleep, just think about a tree. And then we'd monitor their sleep physiologically, um, and when we saw that they'd been asleep for two or three minutes, we would wake them up, and we'd ask them what they were, if they were dreaming and what they were dreaming about, and about 90% of the time, they'd say they were dreaming, and 70 or 80% of the time, they'd say they were dreaming about a tree. And it could be something as simple as, oh, I was dreaming about this tree that was in my backyard where I grew up, or they could be saying, oh, I was dreaming about being a tree and my fingers were branches and my fingernails were leaves. So Mm -hmm. it can definitely get into your dreams easily. And you mentioned the the type of sleep or the the different stages of sleep. Do we dream only in one, the rapid eye movement or REM sleep, or or how do the the other stages play into this? We used to think... We used to think 50 years ago that uh, we only dreamt in REM sleep, and that turns out not to be true. What's, what's, what's right is that we dream probably 70, 80 percent of the night, and that the dreams in REM sleep, where the chemistry is even further changed of the brain, that we dream um, more bizarrely, more intensely, more emotionally. All right. And so one of the the reasons we're talking about this, again, this idea of dream hacking, and there was a recent survey by marketers saying that marketers would love to to get into this dream advertising or bring technologies that would somehow bring advertising into people's dreams. What are your concerns or are there concerns about that? 
There, there are immense concerns about that. When we are asleep, um, our brain has sort of evolved to expect that, that all of the information that comes to it will come from within the brain itself. Um, memories and, and thoughts and emotions that we've had before. And, and so it trusts them in a way that, that it knows not to trust everything that it takes in from the outside world. So maybe the simplest way to say is that we're more gullible when we're asleep. If, if we take subjects um, and just while they're sleeping, say to them, M&M's, 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 or Skittles, 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 and then wake them up in the morning and ask them, which would you rather have, some M&M's or some Skittles? They will say the one that they heard during their sleep, even though they don't remember hearing it while they were asleep. Um, so, so that kind of advertising is effective. In fact, when they ask people, how much would you pay for a big bag of Skittles or M&M's? They're willing to pay more for the one that they heard in their sleep. Hmm. So if advertisers were able to get to us while we were sleeping, without our even knowing it, without our even remembering it, they would alter our preferences for what we want to buy. And it could be advertising in that form, which is particularly uh, the ones that you were referring to, but it could also be uh, vote for Trump, vote for Trump. Trump's a nice guy. Vote for Trump. In the last election, it would only have taken 60,000 votes switched in the whole U.S. in the right places to have changed the outcome of that election. And, and that's what scares me more. I don't know. I don't care so much about being tricked into buying Skittles, which I don't like as much as M&M's, as it would be to, 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 to vote in Trump again. Right. How would that actually work, though, if you, you would you not have to, though, be listening to a device or the message where, still has to your, get to you? Where, where's your phone when you go to sleep? It's on my night table. Right next to your bed? Yes. What's it doing? <laughs> Sitting there listening to me, I think. Well, are you sure it's not talking to you, too? Uh, that's, that's possibly the biggest fear of all. We've all got our phones sitting right next to us when we're sleeping at night. And if not now, in the next five years, certainly that phone will be able to tell whether you're asleep or not. And it can wait till you fall asleep and it can wait a programmed amount of time and it can deliver you its message and you won't hear it. And if it wakes you up and you move, it'll just detect your motion and it'll stop. So is the solution as simple enough, as simple as don't sleep with your phone in your room? Um, that's one very simple solution. The more complicated solution is to go to our respective national governments and have them uh, make that illegal. You know, it's illegal to do this kind of subliminal advertising, which never worked very well, but they thought would have the ability to affect your decisions without uh, you knowing about it. So in the U.S., that's, that's illegal but they haven't done it for dream hacking. And we've just got to get those laws passed too. Right. So laws that would be put in place that you can't have a phone that does exactly what you just said to wait for you to fall asleep and then start to softly or telling you things and trying to hack into your dreams. Right. And what's scary at the moment is that advertisers are very upfront about, Ooh, that's cool. I'd love to do it. They don't feel that there's any moral issue in doing that. Um, and, and so we have to go the legal route.
Is is there an issue if advertisers and the, the phone companies, if they tell you that they're doing this, that they, that it's not that they just are doing this and it's covert, but if you know, if they're up front and say, if you take this phone package or this phone and you sleep with it beside you, this is going to happen. Is it is it okay if then the consumer is given the choice? Probably not. Probably not for two reasons. First of all, if they say, um, you have to, you know, do you agree to this? It's going to be on page seven of that 20 page thing that you have never read. And I have never read that. We always click. I agree. I agree. I consent. So in, 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 in research, we refer to the concept of informed consent, which means that you don't just sign the form, but you know what it actually says. So that's problem. Number one, problem. Number two is most people don't in fact, 99.9% of the public has no idea that if these things are played to you while you sleep, that it will have any serious effect on you. Um, and, and if people knew that, if, if you were asked, you know, do you mind if we uh, play a little ad while you're sleeping, we'll knock 10% off of your phone bill, you say, well, whatever. If they said, uh, do you mind if we play something during your sleep that might alter who you vote for? or which car you buy, or how fast you drive, or whether you start smoking cigarettes or drinking more alcohol without you even knowing about it, you'd say no. So again, informed consent is one thing. Signing at a consent form where you think you're, you know, watching another TV show at night, uh, that's not okay. Well, it is very, very interesting research. So we'll have to leave it there for today. Uh, Robert Stickgold, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is an exclusive story in the Washington Post. And if you fly, you might be paying attention to this. Our show contributor, Scott Chance, joins me now with more on the investigation into some pilots. Scott, good morning to you. Hi, Jill. How are you? Good. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Great to be here. This is uh, an interesting story. Again, the Washington Post has uncovered uh, the number of pilots that are being investigated for falsifying medical records. What are they talking about? Yeah, so this is a really crazy story that I I think rightly so is causing people to get a little bit uh, up in arms and maybe causing panic is probably too strong a word. But yes, so uh, around 4,800 pilots uh, are reporting some degree of mental mental illness. They're not even reporting that they're getting mental illness. They're receiving benefits for mental illnesses. And uh, people are discovering this and they're finding out that it's like, oh, so these, essentially these pilots have mental illnesses that they're getting benefits for, but they didn't disclose this when they were, you know, telling these airlines in the FAA that they wanted to be pilots and that they were going to be pilots. And so rightly so, some people are a little bit concerned that there's a bunch of pilots flying around who may have serious mental issues. Now, a bit of a deeper dive, uh, get you get a little bit more information. So of these 4,800 pilots, that's what they've found so far, only 600 of them are flying commercial airlines. Most of them are, are uh, retired military. They're doing other things like flying private jets, flying transports, that that type of thing. But um, yeah, there's all sorts of like little details in here that uh, uh, that 
are cause for concern. Apparently, the FAA has been no- has known that there's been like some degree of this going on for years, but they're sort of slow to to bring it up and to investigate. I mean, there's a lot of things at stake here, primarily like the aviation industry, like the cost of of flying people. Uh, and finding new pilots and all of that. So, I mean, I think a lot of people are starting to to wonder and to question, like, it, do we need to take a better look at the mental health of, of the airline industry? Right. And uh, you're right, Scott, when you read into this uh, article uh, in the Washington Post and it kind of breaks down the numbers, that first number of 5,000 seems a bit jarring, even though there are thousands and thousands of pilots. But uh, when it goes on to, like you say, it talks about military pilots and that in about half the cases, the FAA has ordered 60 pilots to stop flying on an emergency basis. So still alarming that it's any number, but not this huge number. It's not as though there are thousands and thousands of pilots out there that shouldn't be flying. No, totally not. And in lots of cases, the FAA is willing to like they know that there are pilots who have certain mental health issues like anxiety or depression. Like, let's be honest, a lot of people have and are still able to do the work that they do. Obviously, I understand why that would be a bigger concern for a pilot. But in in many of those cases, they don't bar the pilots from flying. They just you know, have a further investigation and offer some sort of a waiver. They sign off on it, details like that. But oftentimes that that can be like a paper trail, like long sort of month long red tape process. So in lots of these cases, the pilots that are like, well, I'm going to get it waived anyway. I'm fine. I'm just going to go ahead and fly. And it's easier to just not report it. Where right. in, in reality, the FAA would probably be OK with it. But I think now that it's coming out, people are, are, are getting a little bit up in arms and a little bit worried. So I don't know. How do you feel, Jill? Would you would you feel okay getting on a plane knowing that a pilot who was flying it maybe had some mental health issues? Yeah, I probably would be fine with it. Only because after reading this article too, again, it seems like it seems like it's maybe a bigger deal. That, but I get what you're saying too, and the FAA is saying don't hide it. It might not stop you from flying. We want to know about this though. You can't just not disclose this condition, a medical condition, because you're a pilot. You're flying a plane, especially if you're a commercial pilot. Yeah, and I mean it goes beyond the mental health thing as well. Like one of the things that they're looking into is people who are having cardiac issues and substance abuse issues. But I mean, if you, if you're a pilot who is at risk of having a cardiac, uh, cardiac arrest while on a plane, that's a concern. That's something that mm-hmm. they should know about, but same sort of thing. If, um, I mean, we see this in other industries, true truck drivers, that type of thing. When you report it, it stops you from making money. So you, now you, people under report so that they can keep doing their job and it kind of goes on until something happens. So the fear is that, well, the longer we look away from this, the more likely we are that something happens. It is a very interesting article for sure. Scott, thank you so much. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is time for The View from Victoria and time for us to check in with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. There is a reason why we have veered away from Taylor Swift and we are playing this song this morning. And that is because you have gone from, if I'm getting this correctly, somebody who didn't own a bike and had not been riding bikes at all to doing a lot of training on the bike. Yeah, I think the last bike I owned was when I was a teenager, maybe one of those old BMX bikes. But uh, I, at the legislature, uh, advanced education minister Selena Robinson, um, who is a cancer survivor, announced uh, in February that uh, she had had her cancer return. 
And a number of us at the legislature, you know, asked, well, is there anything we can do? And her ask was, join me on the Tour de Cure, which is BC Cancer Foundation's big fundraiser, uh, where you cycle for two days from uh, Surrey to Hope. Uh, and I said, yes. Oh, yeah, sure. Of course. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, looked it up later and thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Uh, you know, 200 kilometers over two days, lots of people, you know, on all those tight Lycra outfits. And uh, so, but I... I crash coursed it, and the uh, event was on the weekend. It raised $7.1 million for cancer research uh, and clinical trials and all sorts of programs, uh, and it was a blast. I, 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 you know, I know it's been going for a number of years, and you pro- a lot of people have probably uh, known someone who has done the ride or been involved in it, but man, what a, what a great event, uh, and, uh, and what an awesome time. Well, and I see you've posted some pictures of it and it does look like everybody's having a great time and really coming together and raising money for find for cancer treatments and finding the, the cure. How was it, though, that the physical part going from a no bike guy to then taking it on that distance for the weekend? Yeah, I mean, your butt hurts. That's, that's the single biggest thing to, to put it uh, bluntly. That's you're sitting on this uh, on the saddle for six hours at a time. Uh, it was it was quite an experience, and you know, it's surprising what your body can do uh, and what you can kind of push yourself to do. And so that I, you know, and I may stick with biking. I, I used to kind of laugh at uh, all the people biking around town, and sometimes I still do. Um, but <laughs> but. Uh, it really is kind of a rush to get out there and, and sort of cycle around. So that uh, that may stick with me in the future. I might be one of those guys, you know, um, all decked out in the fall with all the rain gear, <laughs> cycling through the rain, looking like a weirdo. I, I don't know. But uh, it was a really great, um, you know, you felt like you were doing something good for a good cause. And this event was fantastic. The air quality, as everyone knows, on the weekend was awful. And as you got up into the Fraser Valley, it just got worse and worse and worse. So that was a that was a bit of an issue, but uh, but it was great. Yeah, thanks to everyone for their support over the months. That uh, we had a we had a pie the press contest. I don't know if you were aware of that yes. uh, fundraiser where Vaughn Palmer got pied in the face uh, to raise money for cancer research. Keith Baldry, uh, all the legends of the press gallery. That was a big highlight too. So the, the politicians enjoyed that. Yes, I remember seeing that. That was a fun one to, to watch and not actually be part of it on the receiving end of any of the pies, but a, a fun one to watch. Uh, it, it must be nice, too. Uh, and looking at some of the photos, I don't know if there's a story behind uh, the bright red pom-pom type things that you all have on the helmets, but it, it, clearly everyone's having a good time and, and putting politics aside and just coming together for this event. Yeah, Selena Robinson has been doing it now for 15 years, and so she's put together a team, and they have these kind of red sort of pom-poms on the top, which allow you to spot each other in a crowd of 1,500, 2,000 cyclists, and you can you can locate your team and, and get out there. Um, yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's really a, an event that she's kind of pushed. I think she has raised almost $850,000 over the years alone uh, with mm-hmm. her team for cancer research, and She's continuing to get to that. She wants to get to that million dollar mark. So next year, more pies, more what I'm doing, a lot of cat related activities uh, that uh, help raise money. So, yeah, I'll I'll be on it next year for sure. (laughs) Did you uh, reach your fundraising goal this year? I did. Yeah, I got almost eight thousand dollars and I deployed all sorts of 
fundraising techniques, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really good at that part of it. So next year I'll, next year I'll do a little bit better. <laughs> uh, you mentioned cat activities and uh, you have a page on the tour de cure page. And I know you've posted it as well. The cat that's wearing a very stylish bike helmet and goggles. Uh, could that potentially be the next legislature cat? I would love to, you know, the legislature cat was an idea. I actually, to raise some money for this, I started a Twitter account called BC Politicat. And the only thing that it does is it photoshops a cat into all of those photo ops that government and, and other parties do. So, you know, that would be David Eby. He was checking out a tractor and I photoshopped a cat onto the tractor. Or there was a, a housing event where there was a big construction site behind it. And I put the cat into the backhoe that was doing all the work and that kind of thing. So I, that has raised a little bit of money, too, and it's kind of fun to do and uh, the cat stuff people like the cat stuff transcends political lines I find that the legislature brings all these politicians together so it's been a lot of fun continuing now with Rob Shaw political correspondent with Czech News and Rob you have written about this uh, I found this very interesting a local company that makes helicopter wildfire buckets that sells them all around the world but doesn't sell them in Canada what's happening here yeah, it's really interesting. I didn't know that the world's largest manufacturer, the company that has the market cornered on those wildfire fighting water buckets, the big orange ones that hang below almost all the helicopters in the world, is based out of Delta. And it just quietly sells, you know, millions of dollars of these buckets to countries around the world, more than 100. And 51 of those countries' militaries, like the United States and Germany and Spain and Japan, they use the buckets to fight wildfires. And it's kind of become a question the company has sort of had and others you know, in BC are having about, should our federal government be doing more to help provinces fight wildfires? And this company is pointing out, look, like we sell these buckets to the National Guard in the United States who pitches in and helps the, the um, different states fight wildfires. You could get all of, or most of Canada's 100 helicopters equipped with these buckets for $15 million, which is, you know, pennies in the Department of National Defense budget. And then they could come out and help provinces dropping, uh, you know, water and fire retardants when is needed uh, in the summer, like other countries do. And so that shift to the federal government is something that Premier David Eby is exploring as well. What resources could we better get from the feds than just asking the military for help and kind of getting sort of limited help every year? If we need to continue to appeal to Ottawa, maybe Ottawa should be stepping up and helping the provinces in certain ways. And it's a it's an active discussion going on right now. Uh, and I found, too, and you wrote about the fact that this company keeps a pretty low profile and does uh, these sales around the world. But it's the company now, isn't it, that's asking, well, why isn't uh, why aren't we selling in Canada and why why aren't these buckets being used to fight the wildfires here? Yeah, and I mean, obviously, they have a financial interest in selling those buckets. Uh, but at the same time, they are a long-standing, from, since the 1970s, local company that essentially it doesn't need to sell them to Canada. It sells them to everywhere else in the world. But its employees and its managers are asking, you know, why, why is our military different? And why is it that all these other countries can do this and pitch in and help and Canada can't? And, you know, the answer from the Department of National Defense is it's not really interested in doing that, it would have to train its uh, its helicopter pilots in additional elements of firefighting, uh, and it's dangerous, and they don't want uh, really to go down that road. But 
A lot of other countries do it very effectively, very easily. The, the buckets plug and play into the types of helicopters that Canada has that are no different uh, than the types of helicopters that other countries have. And so the company is just kind of asking, like, you know, in our backyard, when our province is burning down and fires are getting worse every year, why doesn't the military pitch in? And I know David Eby has asked the emergency minister federally, which is Harjit uh, Sajjan from uh, Vancouver, is this the kind of thing? Could we have a federal um, water bomber fleet, a federal helicopter fleet that the provinces could use and help supplement their contractors? And that's a that's an active discussion going on. Right, because it seems a bit strange that on the one hand, they're talking about this idea of a national firefighting team and looking into that. But if you're not going to expand the role of the military or expand that role to have water uh, bombers or helicopters that can drop water, it doesn't seem like it would be all that effective, at least not in that sense and in, in, not in that area. No, I mean, right now, the Canadian military, when you ask for help, it shows up and, it, you know, right now, for example, in the, the most recent round, it opened up a military camp in Vernon for evacuees, or sometimes it sends some sort of frontline army personnel who can help with the digging out in the forest, uh, you know, digging uh, fire lines and that type of thing. But it doesn't fight the fires. It doesn't, the military, does. it can evacuate people, it can, uh, you know, provide assistance, but it doesn't fight Fires, And that's the fundamental question that I think provinces are asking this year is, could they, should they, do we need a different national firefighting unit? That is very complicated. It, you know, it's a provincial jurisdiction. If you create a national firefighting, um, you know, arm of the government, who is in command of it? How does it work? How complicated does it get? So that's a kind of separate thing. But being able to call in the military for help and have them drop some water that's that's a, a slightly lesser, easier thing to get your head around, and it wouldn't cost a lot of money. And um, it's, uh, you know, we'll see what the prime minister who just toured through the Okanagan uh, has to say uh, to the premiers as this comes up. We'll see. Uh, you're right. A very active conversation. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes, but I'm also curious, Rob, about this accusation, the NDP accusing BC United of going after people's personal information. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a nothing burger, but the NDP came out strong saying that the BC United had asked for donations to the Red Cross, created a microsite, and they were data mining uh, people's information. Despicable data mining, as uh, Ravi Parmar, an NDP MLA, said. Well, it turns out that this is kind of the default setting when you fundraise for the Red Cross because you get uh, basically a list of uh, how much money you've helped raise this organization, uh, which is helping with the wildfires. It doesn't give out your name or personal information to those third parties. So BC United was not data mining. Um, it ended up being a kind of blowing back on them because the Red Cross had to come out and say that it wasn't doing that and uh, change its settings and kind of waste its time in the middle of an emergency. Uh, so BC United would like an apology from the NDP on that one. I don't think they're going to get it, um, but uh, a bit of a kind of nothing burger that now there is data mining going on. Like you'll, you'll see stuff like Hey, it's David Eby's birthday. Click here and sign his birthday card. And then suddenly you're on the NDP mailing list for the rest of your life when they want money from you and that type of thing. But that's that's not what this ended up being. Uh, and it kind of was a dust up late last week that, that didn't uh, go anywhere despite a lot of back and forth between the parties. Yeah, it also seems like something, if you're going to make that accusation, maybe do five minutes of research to make sure it's accurate. <laughs> well, that, you know, better to beg for forgiveness later than ask for permission is one of the, you know, the old lines in politics. Throw it out there, throw the mud and see what sticks. But it didn't really stick in this case. All right, Rob, thank you so much for this. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. OK, take care. This is Mornings with Simi. 
As you've been hearing in the news, more residents in the Shuswamp area of BC today will learn more about the damage done by wildfires, specifically the Bush Creek East wildfire. And we are learning more as well about some residents who stayed behind and stayed behind to fight those fires and save their homes and the homes of their neighbours. Jim Cooperman is joining us now, president of the Shuswap Environmental Action Society, also the author of Everything Shuswap. Jim, thank you so much for taking some time today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, there have been uh, a lot of, of different uh, accounts of what's been happening in the area as far as some residents who stayed behind. Uh, we chatted with one last week as well. Uh, can you describe what it's like now? And, and we'll go back and, and kind of recap as well. But what are things like there today? Well, you know, normally you present the um, what's happening sort of as a good news, bad news scenario. So what I thought I'd do is start off with the bad news and then make everybody feel better at the end with the good news. So basically about 10% of the population, the local people, stayed behind. And these aren't just Joe Q people. Many of them are very skilled loggers and contractors, and some have years of experience fighting fires and they are the true heroes in our community they are the ones that managed to somehow shelter from the wildfire the firestorm while the bc wildfire service fled and and they left these locals there for about a day without any help at all and these are the people that work tirelessly day and night, and continue to work tirelessly day and night, protecting homes and properties. They've saved countless homes. There are so many stories out there. And one day I hope to document them all in in perhaps a book. But meanwhile, these people, our heroes, are being denied supplies. The police are out in force. They can't drive on the roads. They can't get in of food and water. They can't get in food for their livestock and their pets. And, and um, they risk getting arrested. There's, uh, the, the police are extremely militant. Some of them, including the conservation officers, are, can be very difficult to deal with. Chase people down. They have spike belts. And these, are the, and they, these people, uh, the contractors, they can't even get fuel for their vehicles. So that's, that's, that's one of the main problems. Another main problem is that the threat of the wildflower, wildfire, wildfire, it, the wildfire, it still continues. Um, it could blow up again. It's all dependent on the weather. And a, a big problem for everybody out there, including the BC Wildfire Service, um, are the hot spots. And trying to put them out is like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You put it down, and hours or days later, it's still up again. And there's still a threat. Two homes that I uh, I know of burned down days after the fire from hot spots. Another big problem uh, is the CSRD, our regional district. They have ostracized our regional district director. And he is on his own. He managed... He stayed behind and he's been helping coordinate uh, the relief effort and everything that's going on in the North Shushwap. He's, 
he's another one of our true heroes. And also, uh, at the beginning, the CSRD issued permits. They're not allowing any permits for people to go back in. Um, so another big problem is many major mistakes were made. And uh, I'm working on beginning documenting all those. And uh, people are saying, well, now's the not, not the time to lay blame. And I, I understand this. But uh, you have to understand that people did not get the warning to leave in time. They were trapped and they had to get out by boat or drive a long ways around on a logging road. Now, the good news. Fortunately, the people on the North Shushwap are both resourceful and resilient. They're finding ways to get around the police, to get to sneak supplies in. Um, it's amazing. People are uh, uh, somehow evading the boats on the lake and getting supplies in that way. I saw a photo on Facebook of a tugboat with a barge and a, and a fuel truck on it. Um, the BC, we, we have great cooperation with the BC wildfire service. Since day one, they've been working side by side with the locals. Um, I, I managed to get back on the second day and um, they were at our place and helping they they have water tanks set up and they've been setting up more with hoses and sprinklers uh, that was all set up just before the the controlled burn and uh, it helped save a number of homes uh, other key people are the fire departments there's fire departments there from every part of the province and just at our place alone we've had uh, fire departments from gibson's from Vancouver Island, from Big White, and from Sycamuse. And they're there to help with the spot fires. They're there when you phone. They come. Um, they're so helpful. Um, right now, uh, just in the last few days, uh, uh, there's been a, a, they've set up courses so that some of these local people can take them and become certified for uh, firefighters. Right. And uh, to date, 44 people have taken the course, and as of yesterday, nine are out, out working on fires side-by-side side with the government's uh, firefighters. And um, if they're aware of uh, fires at their home, near their home, they're allowed to go there and, and work at home if they need, need to be. So um, there are, you know, minor improvements, but they're important improvements. And, and um, BC Hydro... They're they're in force. Um, they've got 45 people there working now, and 75 crews are coming on the weekend. They've already have the power up in Scotch Creek, but uh, they did an assessment. There's 22 kilometers of power line down, 317 poles, 52 pieces of other equipment. So there's a huge job ahead of them, but they're working as quickly as possible. All right. Well, Jim, we will leave it on that positive note. And thank you so much for joining us and letting us know what is happening in that area today. Appreciate your time this morning. Could, could I just add one more thing? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Any listeners, um, uh, could, if they want to help, please phone a politician and tell them that uh, changes have to be made um, when it comes to wildfires. We need to work with local people who have the skills 
in rural areas. And that is what is ha- happens in other jurisdictions, especially the country of Australia. All right. We will leave it there. That is Jim Cooperman, president of the Shoe Swamp Environmental Action Society, also the author of Everything Shoe Swamp. This is Mornings with Simi. We talk a lot about crime in Metro Vancouver and what needs to be done to combat that. Could we look to what is happening in Grand Prairie for inspiration? Well, the mayor of Grand Prairie is joining us now, Jackie Clayton. Thank you so much for taking some time this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You are often described as the no-nonsense mayor of Grand Prairie, a lot of the time because of your approach when it comes to tackling crime. What have you done in that city, in your city, to to take this on, kind of take it on head on? Well, I can say that this council, as well as previous councils, have really had a priority of finding solutions and making decisions where we'll have outcomes and, and, and base those decisions sometimes on very difficult choices, but really on, on creating outcomes and providing opportunities for change in our community. What are the biggest issues facing uh, Grand Prairie when it comes to crime? Well, like many other communities across Canada, we're faced with significant demands in regards to needs in housing, uh, mental health and addiction supports, and, and, and really creating communities that feel safe. Not that are only statistically safe, but feel safe. So we've taken some steps over probably about the last uh, eight years, and really now we're seeing the pieces of the puzzle come together. Don't get me wrong, we still have significant issues like many municipalities do. However, we're making the steps to put us on the right path where we're, we're very hopeful we're going to see some very positive outcomes over the years ahead. And how significant or how big of a piece of this change is transitioning from RCMP to a municipal model? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely part of the solution. And and we're really optimistic. Our police chief of our new municipal police force starts today. And and with that, uh, the transition over five years from an increase to the municipal police force and to a decrease of the RCMP will be a transition that is really a big part of this. We've provided uh, many steps over the way over the years where uh, including a mobile outreach team that is available from 7 a.m. to 11 11 p.m. when people need somebody to support them with possibly uh, a person that may be in front of their business or in the park. Uh, We also implemented a public security unit that is 24 hours a day. Um, We have enforcement officers. So that integrated model, including the municipal police force, being ultimately led by the municipal police force, really will create some opportunities and, and we're optimistic about the outcomes we will see. I don't know if you're aware, it's a contentious issue in Surrey in BC has been the shift from RCMP to a civic to municipal force. Was it the, the policing and it being run from Ottawa or what, what do you expect will change going to that civic force? Well, for us, it was a multiple-year um, discussion. Uh, we did a police service model review, uh, which is a 110-page report that council uh, went through and spent hundreds of hours of reading and learning about. Then from there, we uh, we hired a consultant who brought forward a transition plan, which also took significant time and input. Uh, really, where we're looking to see the opportunities is providing having local input, local oversight for local solutions. I understand, too, that you and your council have banned encampments in the city of of Grand Prairie. How do you bring in a ban like that and enforce it? 
Uh, it's something that was part of a, a long discussion. It's a, a step in in many of the initiatives that we've taken. And really, uh, if they have 24 hours to move, so if somebody calls um, our enforcement team. Um, they will go out, they'll meet with the individual, tell them, look, you're not allowed to have encampments here. Uh, they have 24 hours to move. And, and ultimately, it very seldom comes to that, um, you know, really taking down the tent and taking their personal belongings. Because ultimately, uh, we it doesn't want to be contentious and confrontational. We really want to find these people where they should be, where the solutions are, whether it's a homeless shelter, whether it's a, a warming center where they just need a meal, um, whether it's, you know, a path um, where they can get support. Um, our province uh, supported us with uh, a 75 bed treatment center that really is a nine to 12 month healing and, and treatment center. That's currently um, the lands being identified for that. We acquired a hotel, which will be a dry center for detox and, and, and over uh, multiple years and multiple decisions, including that enforcement of um, taking down encampments became a um, really important part of it. It's, it. It really fortunately has not come to a lot of, taking down tents, but there is that opportunity that if, if required, that um, enforcement has the um, capability to do that. Uh, we only have about a minute left. Uh, I'm curious, have you had pushback to some of your initiatives? I can tell you that my community is very diverse, like most municipalities across Canada. However, uh, the community really wants to see positive outcomes and, and finding those solutions isn't easy. Making difficult decisions that not everybody will agree with is what politicians are, are in place to do, is make those decisions that are good for the community and sometimes hard. I think that ultimately we, um, we see some pushback. Generally, people just want to see some very positive outcomes of all the programs. Well, it is really interesting to see what you are doing and what's happening in the city of Grand Prairie. Mayor Clayton, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time this morning. Thanks for having me. Take care. You too. That is Jackie Clayton, the mayor of Grand Prairie and what she is doing as mayor and tackling some some of the same issues, many of the same issues that we see here in Metro Vancouver. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, later today, we are expecting an update on the number of structures lost or damaged because of wildfires burning in B.C. And at the same time, the B.C. government has made more mental health support available for the thousands of wildfire evacuees in B.C. Working in conjunction with health authorities and other agencies, they are trying to connect evacuees in need with some vital mental health services. Joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Julia Payson, Executive Director of the Canadian Mental Health Association in Vernon. Julia, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. How important is it to, to make sure people are learning about or, or taking stock of their mental health and, and, and dealing with, with mental health issues that could potentially arise when dealing with something as traumatic as being an evacuee and dealing with wildfires? Well, I think it's really important. We see events like this are going to—they're going to have an impact on our health. They're going to have an impact on our psychological health and and well-being. And while many of us will will get through the next few weeks, um, for, for some folks, it'll have a longer-lasting impact. And it's just really important that the more we can do to take care of ourselves and the people around us, the the better off we'll be in the long term as as we come out of this. So what kinds of things are most important as far as getting that support to people? We, so 
it's really important for people to know their own, know their health, know, know what the signs are that their mental health is taking an impact. With the natural disaster, um, it's, it's pretty normal for people to feel a, a various range of emotions from, you know, overwhelmed to maybe being, being numb, being anxious, being worried, being scared. Um, it's normal to see this in yourself or, or in your family. And while um, there's things that people can do kind of in their day-to-day approach to it, and then there's, there's steps people can take if they, if they realize they want more help um, or if they, they need more help in the longer term. And I, I would imagine that's an important part of it, too, is knowing, I mean, it's, it's stressful for anybody that if yeah. you're in that situation. But how do you know, I guess, if you're not, if you're dealing with, with stress that is under control or you actually do need to stop and, and take stock and realize that you need a little bit more help? Yeah, and I think, I think first off, for anyone going through this, whether you're directly impacted with an evacuation, um, potentially even losing your home, um, being on alert or, or being adjacent to these events, to these fires, um, I think it's really important that people first off are able to acknowledge what they're going through. So people are able to talk about their feelings. There's, there's a huge range of feelings people are going through in these circumstances. Some of them, um, you know, they might actually even feel guilty for some of the feelings they have. Um, you know, they may feel guilty that that their home was spared and their neighbors weren't and then they have to deal with those so i think first off it's really important that people acknowledge these are really hard times your feelings are having the normal and they're okay and you can talk to people about them to get to get through them and not get stuck um you know for for adults and, and for older you know younger older kids you can you can see the standard anxiety and, and worry you can see difficulty focusing you can see fearfulness um, sleep issues in younger kids, you know, you might see more um, uh, needing to be held, needing to be comforted, uh, reverting to kind of some younger behaviors. And in all of these cases, again, kind of acknowledging what's happening, um, looking to regain sense of control in your day and helping your, your kids go through that and uh, being kind to yourself and others. One thing that really does help people as well is not just that they can ask for help and they can reach out and get support, but that they can reach out and support others. You know, we've seen a lot of stories, especially um, I've seen them here locally in the Okanagan, of how people have come together to support people who have been affected. And that's helped people deal with their own feelings and their own emotions around this. So, so those are some things you can kind of do immediately in yourself, kind of in your day-to-day. You mentioned that as well, and I think that idea of routine, uh, we touched on this earlier, that uh, going back to school is right around the corner, and that's got to be adding to the the stress and anxiety for a lot of people in that if you've lost your home, your home was damaged, and uh, not knowing kind of what's going to happen when when what is normally kind of a return to that normal routine gets underway. Yeah, and we're hearing from folks as they're trying to find, you know, temporary accommodation right now. Is can they can they get into their school district even? You know, so how do they make sure? And and those are the concerns and the worries that people are having on a on a really practical level that impacts their ability to feel settled. So anything that you can do to help and to support people's routine is really important. And I think it's important to note, you know, we get through these crisis periods and there's a lot of adrenaline, there's a lot of attention. Uh, we're talking about mental health. We're talking about what folks are going through. Um, hopefully as we get through the next few weeks for people, they are feeling settled and feeling better. Um, but also there's, there's less attention on this. And, and I think it's important for people to really think over the next few weeks about how can we support those in our lives who've been going through this, or if we've gone through it, how do we support ourselves and our families? Because as the, as the immediacy wears off, 
um, and the day-to-day sets in, that's where, where some of these things can become really difficult to get through. Um, so we need to be watching out for each other and, and ourselves in, in these next few weeks especially. And is there still a difficulty, do you think, in that people in a scenario like this would assume, well, of course, I'm feeling stressed and I'm feeling anxious. Look at what we've just been through. But yes. but still a reluctance to even, in some cases, reach out for help? Yeah. And, you, and again, it's totally normal. It's totally normal to have these responses in this situation. And so there's two things. One, it's always okay to reach out for help when we're going through a tough time, whether, you know, it's a quote unquote understandable tough time or, or not. It's always okay to reach out and get extra support. Um, you know, our crisis lines, you know, across the province, it's 3106789 from anywhere without a, an area code. You can always call and just say, I just need to talk to someone right now about how I'm feeling. So that's always okay. And, and the other piece is, is that um, for many folks, you know, this, if they can get through this, if they can take care of themselves and take care of others, um, for many folks, they will be able to, to go through these next few weeks and kind of return to their day to day. For some of us, it, it won't be so simple. And, and in a few weeks, we'll find maybe we can't get back to our day to day. Our ability to sleep is still affected or our ability to kind of go to work or, or do our our, our regular routine is not back. And in that case, again, it's really important that people are able to reach out, look at their network of support, say, okay, you know, who are the people I know I can go to? Can I go to my doctor? Can I call a crisis line? Can I talk to my friends? Who are my trusted areas of support for this? Um, because, because we, you know, it, it can continue to affect people's day to day. And just one other uh, final question. What about people dealing with kids? And that I know we often think kids are resilient, but I guess picking up on those signs or knowing when kids are really having a difficult time with this. Yeah, and I think that this is critical. So we, um, one of the best things we can do for ourselves is, is that when we hear our kids and we see those emotions is that we're able to be present for them and we're able to, to hear them. Um, we need to let our kids know that we're keeping them safe and, and who the helpers are. And we need to really remind them that there are helpers. Um, I know a lot of uh, kids in, in this area have been, you know, doing little fundraisers to help first responders, which is a really great way to show kids there are people out there helping. Um, I think listen to the questions, listen to the questions your kids are asking and respond in, in you know, kind of an age appropriate way to reassure them. Um, if you don't know the answers, let them know and let them know you'll look for those answers. Um, let them have their feelings, right? So let them be scared or angry or upset and be there with them as they go through that. And then just watch out for, you know, these things becoming longer term again. So see if there's a return to normal, see if that routine helps them. Um, but but be present with them, let them have those emotions and then provide those real concrete, um, reassuring pieces to let them know they're safe. Very good advice. Julia Payson, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's check in with head coach of the BC Lions, Rick Campbell. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you today? I'm very well. How about you? Doing all right. Licking our wounds a bit, but we're, we're going to be okay and we're going to keep moving forward. Right. So this was a pretty big loss to Hamilton. What happened? Um, we just never could get on track. Um, we, we got behind on the scoreboard and uh, I think the last two weeks we've been playing teams that are uh, desperate to fight to get in the playoffs. And um, I think we need to make sure we're matching that urgency level. 
Even uh, with uh, what happened uh, with uh, this loss to Hamilton, uh, Vernon Adams Jr., a pretty good game. Uh, how did that kind of play out, or what are your thoughts on, on how Vernon Adams uh, Jr. played? Yeah, he's been doing a really good job for us. He's been doing a great job on the field. He's been been a great leader in the locker room, and um, he, he's playing well enough for us to win, and we just need to play well as a team. And you know, All the teams we play now from here on out, everybody's fighting for playoff spots, so uh, we got to make sure we're on top of our game. I've heard this one described as uh, it was a slow start, a bit sloppy, and that kind of continued uh, through the whole game. It, not that it's ever a good thing, but is it better to kind of have that wake-up call now as opposed to, say, months down the road? Yeah, I think so. I think it is a little bit of a wake-up call. We had a good week of practice, and we have good, good guys in the locker room, but I think maybe, uh, I don't know if the word's complacent, but I think we were at 7-2 and two and maybe feeling a little bit too comfortable. So it's not a bad thing to uh, to get knocked down once in a while as long as you learn a lesson from it. And so, uh, you know, we'll be ready for the next one. Uh, so uh, what lessons or learned lessons do you take then looking ahead to uh, Saturday's visit to Montreal? Uh, well, like I said, it, this, we're, we're down to the last uh, seven, eight weeks of the season. And so all these games are going to be big and, these teams we've been playing are behind us in the standing, so they're trying to chase us. So we do just make sure we're functioning at a high urgency level, and I fully expect our guys to do that. That's been their, their body of work, and so uh, we'll get back at it, and we play Montreal on uh, Saturday at 4. All right, and does it help that you won against Montreal last time? Yeah, that was a tough game. Montreal's really good. They have a similar record, record to us. They're 6-4, and four, we're 7-4, and four, and it's always a a long road trip to go out east, but it's a, it's a fun place to play, and uh, um, it should be a good game. All right, sounds good. Rick Campbell, thanks so much. All right, have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is time to check in with Mornings with Simi contributor Scott Chance to talk about Oliver Anthony. Uh, Scott, not everyone has heard this name. No, and uh, I'm su- I was a bit surprised, actually, when I came in this morning and asked you and our producer, Bianca, if, if you guys had heard of Oliver Anthony, and you both said no. The reason I ask is because he has had the number one video on YouTube. His name is uh, being suggested to take part in a Super Bowl performance, not the performance, but the national anthem. We'll get to that in a sec, but uh, I, I really like music, Joe. We've talked about music a bit before, and you know I like music, and I like the stories often behind the music, where the music kind of speaks to more. So Oliver Anthony is this YouTube sensation uh, singer-songwriter. He has a song out right now called Rich Men North of Richmond. I'll play you a clip of it, and before you like judge the song, I'm just playing this for context because it's about more than just whether or not you like the song. But here it is. This is Oliver Anthony, Rich Men North of Richmond. Lord, it's a damn shame What the world's gotten to For people like me People like you Wish I could just wake up And it not be true But it is All it is Living in the new world With an old soul so that's what he sounds like. That's what he sounds like. Okay. Yeah. And he's written this song about 
like the the rich men in in north of Richmond, Virginia, which is where he's from. So this song it, it debuted on a YouTube channel called Radio WV, and that YouTube channel is really small. It had like twenty thousand followers two weeks ago, and uh, they they showcase independent artists like this from that part of the state. And since they they launched this video of Oliver Anthony singing it. It's filmed on his property. He lives in a camper that he bought for $750. He's a high school dropout. He plans to farm. He never had an uh, plans to make like a living being a musician. When he, when they put that video up, he was, he put it on Spotify as well. And he had 374 followers on, on his Spotify account. Today, two weeks later, he has 4.5 million followers, and his YouTube streams have gone up 102,000%. Not 102%, 102,000%. He's also the first artist ever to debut a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100, and only the third artist ever to have 15 songs at one time on the Billboard chart while alive. The other two are Michael Jackson and Prince. Hmm. So he's in some really, really, really rare air. But what's got people so riled up is that so many people have latched onto this song as some sort of like a political anthem because he's singing about, you know, the the economic divide, that he lives on a piece of land and he lives in a trailer and he can't really do anything with his life because his dollar is taxed and uh, the rich people around him that kind of control the government are so like uh, just just on top of everything, you know, and people have, have sort of liked this idea and really latched on to him. And then this is like the follow up story at the Republican debate, the debate for the Republican leader at the first one. The leader or the host of the debate played a clip of the song and asked why this resonates with so many people. And all these Republican candidates were kind of like latching onto it. Like Ron DeSantis said, like, yeah, that song's about Joe Biden and people like Joe Biden and all these folks like that who have sort of made things hard for guys like Oliver Anthony. Well, here's Oliver Anthony's response to that. Uh, Sorry. Here is Oliver (laughs) Anthony. My computer was down. Here's his response to that presidential debate because it's like i wrote that song about those people and he's talking about the people on the stage at the presidential debate he said the song is not about joe biden he said it's about all of you about politicians he doesn't say that he's like a right-wing uh paul he describes himself as super centrist so he's kind of like captured the attention of the music industry, culture, streaming artists, all these type of things because he wrote what he describes as this really, really honest song. And everyone is latched onto it. And now he's coming out sort of saying, like, none of you guys get what what this is even actually about. Uh, he was offered an $8 million recording contract. He turned it down. Uh, two big country producers, John Rich from Big and Rich, offered to write an album with him. He's turned that down. And uh, he said he's responded to over 50,000 requests from fans. They're talking about booking a tour for him. And he's sitting there just saying, no, I don't want any of this. None of you guys get why... I'm doing this. And of course, I think the bigger story, it's like all the music people, all the industry people behind this who try to turn out successful artists like this and maybe hit one in a hundred. Here's a guy that just did it without trying to do it. And it's exploded. 
And he's turned all the the money and the opportunity down, which I thought interesting too. I thought I saw a quote for, from him saying he's thrilled with the global response, but he's annoyed with the musicians and politicians acting like they're all friends and all buddies. So, so I was I was curious. Did you get the sense then? Is it he just wants the message out there? What's the what's the purpose behind him doing this? Yeah, he said that he wrote the song because he was not in a good space mentally, and he has a bunch of other songs too, but. He, he says like kind of like a hobby for him. His plan was to have a livestock farm on his parents' land or his grandparents' land in Virginia and never really thought that being a musician would be a serious career. So he did this and then this like local kind of independent music channel published it and it kind of took off. And I mean, I, I would find it incredibly difficult to turn down the money and the opportunity, especially when they're kind of offering you Control. I mean, if you Google his name, you're going to find a million articles about him. Like some of them, they've they've taken a whole bunch of industry professionals and asked them to give him advice and written down like a list of different sort of advices for him. And some are saying like, dude, you can write your own ticket. You have all this clout now. And he's kind of trying to figure that out. But I think what he's trying to do is just express this thing that so many people have been trying to express but haven't been able to get right. And I feel like he's touched a nerve for so many, right? Like... The world is getting out of control. It's so expensive, and there's nothing else we can do about it but write songs. But apparently writing songs works. <laughs> and and he doesn't like the fact that, like you said, it was used at the Republican debate and that a lot of Republicans, the politicians and pundits, have taken over or adopted the song saying, oh, this is our song. Yeah, and I think that's really, really interesting how people hear something where he's talking about uh, the he has this disdain for wealth. And uh, Republicans are like, yeah, that, that's that's exactly what the problem is in America. And he's saying, no, it's like you guys, you people who are the politicians on stage here, you are the problem. You've created these laws and these systems and these rules that have allowed um, corporations and big money and, you know, big interest to take things away from people like him. So I don't know. I just find it really really interesting how things like social media and YouTube and online streaming have enabled a person like this to take control of the conversation, whether he wanted it or not. And uh, big industry like recording and music, um, they, they don't really know how to respond to it. They want to capitalize on it and he's kind of not even letting them. I think that now they're looking for the next person like this and going to try to find whether or not they can they can create stars in this same way. I even had a moment where I thought, I hope this doesn't turn out to just be like some big put on, like it's all an act. Mm. Like they knew that it was going to happen anyway and he's been a recording artist and they found him and wrote the song for him. You know, one, one of those like orchestrated thing. I hope it's not that, but I had a moment of fear that maybe it would be. Anything is possible. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is a very, very big goal, and it's going to take a, a lot of energy. My next guest plans on rollerblading around the world in a number of days to help save the bees. So let's find out exactly how Zach Chobot is planning to do this. Zach is a Guinness World Record holder. He lives in Whistler, and he is on the line with us now. Thank you so much, and good morning to you. Hello, good morning. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, this is a pretty exciting thing you're doing. How did you come up with this idea to rollerblade this distance to help save the bees? All right, well, it, it all actually started when I moved to Whistler. I met this awesome group of people that really changed my life and inspired me to care about the environment and, and 
and like the world we live in and how it's changing. And they also kind of exposed me to crazy adventure. So I wanted to put the two together. And I've always been a pretty, my weird flex is that I'm a pretty good rollerblader. So I was like, oh, I should inline skate across Canada. And then, so I inline skated across Canada uh, in 2021. And, and it was super successful. So I thought I should take this to another level. <laughs> so you weren't tired of rollerblading after, what was it, 91 days to, to go across the country? Yeah, 91 days, a little over 10,000 kilometers. Surprisingly not. I remember getting to the end and everyone just was like surrounding me saying, you must be so tired. Do you want to throw those rollerblades in the ocean? And just kind of saying, I, I actually feel pretty good right now. I, I could keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's great. Did you have any issues, strains or sore muscles, wheels that had to be replaced? Was it, how was it, what were the big challenges? Um, yeah, so I was lucky enough that uh, I, I had a support van and I had my, my sister, Rachel. She deserves all the praise. The, she was kind of, she was driving me across, like she, she would support me across the country as I skated. Um, the biggest thing, I, I ended up in the hospital in a little town called Wetaskiwin in Alberta. The, they sell cheap cars there. That's their slogan. And the, the doctors were awesome and they kind of like literally and figuratively got me off my feet and sent me back on the road. And then, yeah, you, you mentioned the wheels. It cost about like $3,000 in wheels, about 60, 60-ish wheels to get across the country. Huh. And, pretty epic. and yeah, that, that's a lot of wheels for rollerblades. How did you pick the route and make sure that you were rollerblading and safely making your way across Canada? Uh, we had specific like points across the country of cities that we knew we wanted to hit, um, uh, like based on our sponsors and, the, and our partnerships along the way. But then to be honest, just because uh, in, back in 2021, we wanted to be safe because of COVID as well. Mm-hmm. So we just, Every, like, honestly, it's, it's kind of hilarious to think about, but every night my, my sister and I would, like, go on Google Maps and say, okay, we're headed there, let's take this way, because, and it was just so funny, and we got pretty lucky. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Definitely. So you, you finished up, as, as you do, 91 days, more than 10,000 kilometers. So you still had energy mm-hmm. to keep going. So how do you even start with uh, circumnavigating the globe on uh, inline skates? I think I, I saw that if you do this, you're going to be the first person to, to do that on uh, inline skates. How do you even begin and, and map out a route? Oh, that's a great question. And there's still a lot of logistics and other sort of factors to figure out and we're, we're like an awesome group of people helping and working on that. Um, but I guess it's with these lofty, huge, crazy goals and it could be like really relative to like skating across the world or biking or like any big adventure, starting a business. I think the important thing is just to, just to start. And that's the hardest thing because if you try to take on it all at once, it seems like this crazy, impossible, lofty goal that is impossible, but it, it, it can happen. You just kind of got to start. So for me, it was just like getting an awesome group of people together and then kind of uh, getting everyone to do like specific jobs and then, and then working from there. And then we all just kind of collectively work together. Do you have to skate across Canada again then as part of going around the world or can you count the time that you've already done it? Oh, uh, I wish I could say I could count the time, but I, I, got, I got to do it again. And I think I might go in the States a bit. I think mm. uh, the route is, North America, going to start in Vancouver, going to kind of diagonally go across North America and then finish the world. And then eventually I'm going to come back to Alaska and then come down through BC. It's kind of a, it's kind of an ode to a lot of the cyclist records um, just because it is 
this crazy rare opportunity to, to have like a world's first as well. I feel like every every world's first is, has already happened. So I have this like crazy unique opportunity and I want to do it the right way. Right. So, although you realize you yeah. just said uh, diagonal across North America, finish the world, then come back. That, that finish the world part is probably going to take a while. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're thinking of, it's going to take about anywhere from eight to eight months to a year. And that's if I'm like going really efficiently without any, without any, without any major problems, but you never, you never know. So I guess we're just going to have to be a little versatile and open, but yeah, we're hoping it's going to take a, about a year max. Hmm. So you've carved, was, that was, was going to be my next question. How long do you have to do this? So you've carved out a year to, for, starting in April to get this done. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of works with uh, the amount of kilometers I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to attempt to skate every day. That kind of works weather wise and it being in the Northern and Southern hemisphere, there's a lot of factors to think of. So it's kind of hilariously awesome. Um, but yeah, so April is kind of the best time for us to start. And is your sister going to be with you as your support team on this adventure as well? I'm really trying to convince her to. She was such a big help on the last one. Um, I, I, there's, I have this little sense of guilt asking people to, to take like big chunks of their life just to, just to help me do this like lofty, amazing goal. But I guess we are helping the bees and, 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 and like we're creating platforms and doing this awesome stuff. So I hope she'll come. She she just got back from Australia, so we'll see we'll see where her life is next April. <laughs> and and talk a bit more if you can about why you chose bees and to really focus on saving bees. Yeah, uh, I actually never loved bees. Everyone assumes that I was this crazy beekeeper kid growing up, and I am very quickly becoming a crazy bee person. I don't have any um, like bee like honey bees at home. Like I, I don't not a beekeeper myself, but I think the more you learn about something, the more you care about it. And it, it, that totally like worked for me. Like, uh, I learned about the bees. Um, so someone was like, Oh, you should call it blading for bees. This is like three years ago now. Um, and I was like, Oh, that's a good idea. And I was like, wow, bees are actually really important. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and they're cute and they're fuzzy. Everybody loves them. So the, I guess, yeah, the bees are a great mascot for the environment. If they help, if we help the bees, we kind of help everything. So it kind of, they're like a really awesome uh, example of how we're all connected too, which I think is really important because yeah, there's a lot of people in the world that are dealing with other issues. So it's important that we all kind of help each other out. I think that's a really cool, cool message. Um, and yeah, and they're so important for our food, for like our culture and, and not only the honeybees, I think everyone, when people try to save the bees, everybody just, everybody just assumes we're just talking about honeybees, but the honeybee actually came from Europe. So a lot of people don't know that honeybees aren't even native to North America. So a big, um, a big thing that bee uh, people who were, were trying to save the bees, we, we try to say that, like we try to help the native bees as well. It's because there's over 20,000 species, not just one species of honeybee. How can people learn more about your journey and uh, potentially follow along? Yeah, so if you can follow at Blading for Bees on literally every social media, um, we're yeah we're, we're everywhere and we're 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 always posting about like updates and our journeys. If people want to learn more about the bees, you can also go to a website or you can go one of our sponsorship, uh, one of our partnership NGOs and charities is called the Pollinator Partnership. So if you go there, there's like really awesome specific data. There are friends at the Pollinator Partnership, um, but yeah, at bladingforbees.com too. Uh, we're we're all over the internet, or you can look me up too, Zach. <laughs> all right, Zach, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear from you again before uh, you set off uh, on this journey, but thanks so much for being with us today. 
That would be wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I hope you have an awesome day. You too. That is Zach Chobot, a Guinness World Record holder from Whistler, and he is going to attempt to inline skate around the world, raising awareness for bees and trying to save the bees.